0: My uh, last year in seminary, I had the awesome opportunity to uh, work as a part-time youth pastor under the head youth pastor at the church I grew up in. It was great. I, I loved what I did there, and I also loved being in seminary, the academic environment. I just, I just loved spending quality time learning about God every day from people who had been journeying, journeying with God far longer than I ever had. The only downside... To to that kind of life is often I found myself really busy, and on one of those days when I was really busy, I was in the office, the church office, and on my way out, ready to kind of try to wrap up and get all my papers done for the for the end of the year, for the end of the semester, um, a man came in to church. This man looked different than our average person. Our church was you know mostly middle class suburban church. Well, this guy walked in and I could he wasn't dressed like you know. Most people dress when they walk into a church. He had a lot of uh, tattoos all over his body. Um, and he seemed a little bit more... How should I put this? Rough than the kind of people I was, I was used to seeing at this church. And he came up to me and said, Hey, I need to talk with you. I didn't know who he was. This is the first time I'd ever seen him. Now, my gut instinct was, Oh man, I, I really don't have time. I mean... I have a lot of stuff to do. I have papers to write, things to do, important things, and I just really don't have time. But I thought, well, you know, I guess I'm a pastor and I want to be Christ-like, so, I mean, I should talk to the guy. And so I did. As we talked, he told me about his life. He told me that he had just recently gotten out of prison and was happily reunited with his wife and his little girl. Well, the unfortunate thing he told me about being an ex-con is, it's not easy to find work. And he, tr- he told me that he tried and he was trying, but nothing came up. And so his wife and his daughter were at home without diapers and without food and no money to get either. And he came to me wanting the church to help. Now, this is a pretty normal situation, Um, I hadn't been in ministry long, but I I knew people came to churches for stuff like that because churches are known for helping. That's a great thing. But also, some people, and sometimes, in our church, which was located kind of, it was a suburban church, but it was located in the, the more inner city type part of town, we had a lot of people who spent pretty much their days going around to different churches just kind of trying to work the system and get as much free as they could without going to get a job. It wasn't it wasn't frequent, but it happened. And my first thought was, well, maybe this guy's just trying to, to play the system. Because we had to watch out for that. You know, if somebody came back six or ten times to get stuff, and we had seen him over across from church, we, you know, at that point we start to think, okay, maybe this person, you know, we need to find another way to help them instead of just giving them money. So I started to try to run my brain all through all the filters I had about whether or not I should help this guy. And then he looked at me with all seriousness in his eyes after just after just having asked for help and said, do churches actually help people? The question kind of took me by surprise. He wasn't being sarcastic. And as far as I could tell, he was completely honest. Here's a guy who's 35, 45, and he comes into a church wondering if the church actually helps If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. We'll begin by reading verses 25 through 29. I'll give you a minute to turn. Verses 25 through 29. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now the passage begins with an expert in the law questioning Jesus. An expert in the law is not somebody who was an expert in the law of their times. It was not somebody who was like a lawyer or what we would think is a police officer. It was somebody who knew very well what the Jewish people referred to as the law, which in today's world is our first five books of the Bible. This guy was not only an expert in the Bible, as they knew it at the time, he was also an expert in Jewish laws and Jewish customs. And so, when he came to Jesus questioning him, we're we're wondering, well, wouldn't he already know what the greatest commandment is? But the scripture says he did this to test Jesus. Now, there's a lot of times in scripture when people come to test Jesus and their motives are basically, they're trying to, to prove that Jesus is a fake. They're trying to push their own agenda and try to somehow show others that Jesus is a fraud and it never works. But in this scripture, as far as I can tell, we're not really sure why he was testing Jesus. It seems to me that there's a possibility that he was coming to Jesus asking him, is this the kind of guy I should follow? Is, is, is his teaching, is it for real? Is it something I can trust? Something I can live by? Because it was very common in those days, if you knew a rabbi and wanted to become one of his students, you would come to him and ask him a few basic questions. And from those questions, you would know, is this a guy I want to follow or is this a guy I don't? And so he asked Jesus one of the most common questions. Well, what's the greatest commandment? But instead of just answering his question, Jesus does what he does a lot of times in Scripture. He answers one question with another question. Jesus says to him, What is what is what is in the law? How do you read it? I mean, you're the expert. You tell me. And so he says, Well, I've read the Bible and purpose-driven life five times, and I can tell you it's love God and love other people as yourself. Pretty simple. But then the man, at that point you would expect the conversation to end. But at that point, the man decides... To, to go on, and as the scripture says, justify himself. Now, that basically means that he was trying to show that he was right, that he was a righteous person, that his actions in his life were right, that he was somebody that other people could look up to. And so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? You see, he's what he's probably doing here is he's trying to find out if it's okay not to love some people. You see, in their world, they had a lot of different groups of people that were constantly at war with each other. Jews didn't like Romans. Romans didn't like Jews. Jews didn't like Samaritans. There was political tension, racial tension, economic tension, um, gender tension oftentimes. It was a world filled with different groups of people who didn't like each other. And he wanted to show that he was not liking the right groups of people. That's probably what he was doing. Well, Jesus has a story for him. This Pharisee who came, or sorry, this expert in the law came to Jesus wanting to know, who can I love and who can I not love? Now, I've been a Christian for a while now. And just like the expert in the law, I'm pretty familiar with the greatest commandment. You know, love God, love other people. We're told that from Sunday school as a little kid. And it's something pretty much, even a lot of people on the street who aren't Christians might even know that what the greatest commandment is. And yet, in my life, I've found it's a very easy commandment to understand, but a lot harder to follow. You see, it's easy to understand that I'm supposed to love my neighbor, but it's hard when I start to figure out who do I apply it to and how do I apply it, when do I apply it. Those questions are often kind of hard. It's especially difficult to love people when when they're the kind of person that we normally wouldn't associate with. There are some people in this world that make it very hard for us to love them. When I was in college, I had a professor who I had a difficult time loving. You see, I I, I had liked to, I like to think of myself as a good student. And when I was in college, my very worst nightmare was the possibility of getting an A minus. Some of you can relate, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Either way, it's okay. But I had this one professor. Most of my classes, I could figure out what the professor wants. I did the work, no problem, got an A, right? Well, I had one professor who no matter how hard I tried in his class, I never got good grades, just never. It seemed like the guy had something against me. And so, you know, like any super over-obsessed student, when I got even the tiniest bad grade, I went to him to talk about it, to see what I could do to improve. And the first time I came to him, he gave me some kind of, you know, glib, short answer, just kind of brushed me off and went about his way. The second time, very politely, he slammed the door in my face. Now, it's hard to describe how somebody can politely slam the door in your face, but essentially, I mean, he, he was very polite about it, but he just essentially very nicely told me, you know, I just really don't have time for this. Shut the door. I'd been a Christian at that point for three or four years and thought, I like everybody. It's not hard for me to love anybody. I would have told you I know the greatest commandment. It's easy for me. I'm doing it great. But i got to tell you, I didn't like that guy one bit. And then, a, a preacher came to Mount Vernon and preached a sermon on Matthew 5:44, which which states... But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So, again, again, praying for my professor, right? Um, In fact, the more I didn't like him, the more I started to pray for him. Just because that's what the preacher said. I just made it as simple as that, I guess. Um, And it seemed, I figured nothing else was working. Might as well give it a try. And so the more angry I got with him, the more I prayed for him. By the end of the semester, I probably had prayed for him more than I had prayed for anybody in my entire life. I'm ashamed to admit I probably prayed for him more than a lot of his family members did. I prayed for him and his family. Any time that I got frustrated or upset with him, the first thing that I did was I prayed for him. And I didn't call upon curses or anything like that, you know. I didn't ask for lightning. I'm sure other people in the class were, but I was good. My prayer was simple. I just said, God, I think my professor needs to change. Would you uh, change him for me? Right, Not not the great, most spiritually mature prayer in the world. But then I added a second part. But God, if I'm the one who needs to change, you can go ahead and change me. I don't know if my professor was changed, but I was. I went up to him after getting another bad grade and said, listen, I've tried to come to you two times before. Um, It seems like you haven't had time to deal with me. Um, I really want to do well in your class. I I really care about ministry. I, I want to learn the stuff you're trying to teach me. Can, can you help me out here? I'm, I'm sinking. And he looked at me and said, yeah, come into my office. For the next hour, hour and a half, that professor took time to go over the syllabus, show me every single thing that I was doing wrong. He let me bring out all my old assignments. He not only showed me how to do well in that class, but he showed me how to do well in school, period. He taught me lessons that day that I took with me to seminary and was, was God was able to help me be successful in seminary, seminary largely through some of the things that he taught me. And then when I started going to class, when he started teaching, I started to realize that this guy has some really good things to say. He's really wise. I, I should I should pay attention. Instead of being angry at him this whole time, I'm, I'm going to try to learn from him. And so I did that. And i got to tell you the truth. I had a lot of professors at Mount Vernon that made an impact on me. But few made as big an impact on me as him. There are so many things I learned from him. But I think I would have missed all those things if I hadn't prayed for my enemy. In response to the um, expert in the law's attempt to justify himself, Jesus responds by telling a story that I'd like to read for you. It continues with our with our passage for this evening in Luke 10, verses 30-32. through 32. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. In this story, a man is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he has a rough time. He gets beat, all of his money and clothes are taken. He's found there, or he ends up there, half dead, laying on the side of the road. Now, in this story, this man is obviously, you would think, a Jew, since he's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, both predominantly Jewish cities. And in this story, as soon as two characters appear, you would think, help is on the way. At least that's what the expert in the law thought. Because, you see, the first character was a priest. Now, the duties of a priest differ But for for the most part, priests were in charge of helping run worship. They were in charge of helping out at the temple, kind of the place where a lot of people came to offer their sacrifices and praises to God. So he was in charge of making sure things ran smoothly there. He was the guy that you could count on to lead you in worship. This is a guy who knows his Bible front and back. This is a guy who knows to love God and love other people. And so in the story, when we see that a, a a priest is walking up to this man we think help is on the way because if anybody knows to help somebody in trouble it's going to be a priest but instead he passes by on the other side then the next guy comes and it's a Levite and once again a Levite is similar to a priest in a lot of ways throughout scripture they have a lot of different um, job descriptions but essentially they also help with worship this Levite also he knows his Bible he knows the charge in scripture to love other people But for some reason, he too passes by. And if you're, if you've never really stopped to think about it, you might just say, these guys are jerks. I mean, seriously. I mean, they read the, most people, uh, most people in those positions had the entire first five books of the law memorized very young. You know, if you think of like, um, quizzing, they, they did kind of, I mean, they didn't have jump seats back then, obviously, but they took time to memorize their scripture. They had it memorized. They could quote it. And that's without chapter and verse numbers. So why did these guys pass by? In my life, most of the time I've read this story, I've demonized these guys. But as I continue to take a look at this scripture, I've realized that, you know what, if you stop to think about it, what these men did is not only somewhat understandable, but I might have even done the same thing. There's two reasons why they could have passed by on the other side. The first one is that it was dangerous. I mean obviously this is not a safe road. One guy just got beat up and left for dead. Why stop and give the bandits a chance to make it two dead people, right? Also it was not uncommon on those days for one person to fake being injured. Somebody stops to help him, his bandit buddies get out from behind the nearest camel and go and beat you up, take your clothes, take your money. And so they had very good reasons for passing by. We can judge them, but i got to be honest with you. I see people hitchhiking all the time. I don't always stop to pick them up. I also have had people come up to me when I've gone to Chicago or other big cities and say, hey, do you kind of corner me and say, hey, do you have any money on you? And every time I don't get out my wallet all that quickly, because quite frankly, sometimes I think it's just not that safe. I'm not saying it's a good thing that sometimes I do that, but that's what I do. The other reason is that, according to um, the Old Testament and other laws they followed, those who helped people in worship, those who helped with the sacrifices and helped with the praises that went up to God, they had to stay what is known as ritually pure. The idea was that God is so holy and so above everything else, we can't bring disorder. We can't bring sin into His presence. And one of their rules was, you can't touch. Dead bodies. If you do, death happens in life. Death reigns in our world because of sin. They had that understanding. And if you get close to death, if you touch it, it's going to corrupt you. And all of a sudden you no longer can go before the Holy God. But even more so, you can't lead other people in worship because you're sitting there full of sin. It's it's caught on to you. Even if you didn't mean to touch a dead body, it's not your fault. You're not you're not guilty. God's not going to punish you, but but you're not ready to lead people into worship. That was the idea they had. And so, and so, these men, it was their job to help other people love God. And so, when they saw the dead body, they probably thought, if I stop, I might get defiled, and then people might be hindered from worshiping God. You see, with the ex-con, my, my hesitation to help him was kind of the same. I mean, I had seminary papers to finish. I'm sure I had some kind of sermon or lesson to write. I had a lot of things to do that were very important. And nobody would have judged me if I would have told him to come back later. If I would have just simply passed by. After all, somebody else could just be coming later. So I was there with the ex-con. And I, I had to make some kind of decision. Well, I decided not to pass him by, but my honestly, my... My answer to a situation wasn't a tons different. I went to the secretary's office, and we kept uh, gift cards for people in just such a situation. I, I gave him a twenty-dollar gift card that was to a grocery store in town that didn't um, that sold diapers and food, and just sent him on his way, hope it would help him. Uh, and I, you know, I stopped talking to him as quick as I could, and I, I hurried back to get my papers done and get my things finished. In our story, just when the beaten man thought he would die, just when he thought the two people I thought I could count the most passed me by, another man walked by, the last man you would expect to help someone. Please read with me Luke 8, 33-35. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you have. This part of the story was shocking, not only to the expert in the law, but to Jesus' original audience. To them, a Samaritan was like a murderer or some kind of really terrible, scary criminal to them. Or maybe how we might view some, um, how we might view like a terrorist group. These are people that they considered, first of all, ritually unclean. A lot of Jews didn't associate with Samaritans. Period. They also saw them as religious heretics. They pretended to worship God like Israel, but they had their own versions of what we would consider the first five books of the Bible. They considered them to be alterations of scripture they changed things around in their minds and it was it was wrong it defiled the word of God and they wanted nothing to do with people like that after all I believe it's Psalm 1 or Psalm 2 that says you know blessed is he who doesn't sit in the seat of mockers the Samaritans were people who didn't follow God in their mind and didn't deserve love and all those hatreds and tensions that I, that I mentioned Jews and Samaritans dislike each other a lot and yet in this story the Samaritan, of all people, stops, bandages the man up, puts him on his donkey, takes him to an inn, and covers his expenses. He goes far and, above and beyond what we would think the meaning of love even is. It would have been love if he would have stopped and you know, tried to get help. It would have been love if he just would have bandaged him up and gone on his way. But yet, he did everything he could to help somebody who needed it the most. Now, a lot of times, when I, when I write a sermon, I have my wife kind of look over it. Because when she um, she's an editor by trade, and so it kind of helps to have another opinion. She'll tell me, you know, okay, this makes sense, this doesn't. It's very, very helpful. When I had her check over this, um, she told me, you know, I have my own Good Samaritan story that happened to me when I was a girl. And so I've asked her to come and share it with you.
1: I actually wrote this two weeks ago for my um, online, weblog, so this, I don't know, it might not sound very tricky, I apologize, for that. Um, okay, a middle school parable. Middle school was a terrible time for me, but medicine is that way for everyone. My particular cross to bear as a seventh grader was reverse culture shock. I spent the past four years in the Middle East. And now I was in small town, Midwestern USA, without knowing how to relate to people of my own nationality, or even use a pop vending machine. I was not popular. I had run-ins with one girl in particular. I can't for the life of me remember her name, but she was kind of burly and very American, and she wore a lot of Kurt Cobain t-shirts. And, well, I don't know, let's just call her Jackie for today. Once I overheard her talking about me to my math teacher, um, griping very loudly during class about how I thought I was all that because I came from Jordan and I couldn't participate in PE all the time because I was sick a lot. And um, the fact that the teacher didn't stop Jackie's complaining um, made me really livid. Uh, I had never done anything to this girl. I avoided people in general. Um, so I got up in the middle of math class and I let her know what I thought. I told her in no uncertain terms that I couldn't help where I had grown up, and I wanted nothing more than to be left alone. Well, the teacher put me out in the hall and told me that I needed to learn some self-control. But a few weeks after that incident, I was on my way to lunch. A friend and I had stayed late after um, class to talk with our teacher, and so the halls were pretty much empty as we went down to the cafeteria. We scuttled down a flight of stairs quickly, um, because we weren't supposed to be in the hallways anymore. But I've never been very good at scuttling anywhere. (laughs) The second step in the flight of stairs wasn't where I expected it to be, and I pitched headlong down 15 steps onto a tile landing, and my tear ducts decided to go crazy before I even registered the pain. Um, I heard someone swear, and I saw a pair of sneakers, moth-eaten sneakers, and then the pain set in, and I started crying and bawling in earnest. Because I hurt everywhere my books and lunch were all over the hallway and then I felt my face begin to burn with embarrassment and oh my goodness I've never been so embarrassed Um, I tried to prop myself up but I was shaking too badly I couldn't even get on my knees Um, but before I even knew what was happening I felt strong arms grapple me to my feet and pick me up off the floor like clean up off the floor and someone said get her stuff in my ear And she grunted it to my friend. And then she was halfway down the steps before I even realized who was carrying me. Um, Jackie was walking. No, not walking, running, with me in her arms, taking me to the nurse's office. Um, My first thought was, oh, my goodness, she's very, very strong. And (laughs) my second thought was, of all the people for me to wipe out in front of, you know, I was really embarrassed. And my third thought was, why on earth is she helping me? Aren't we enemies? Um, she got me to the nurse's office at record speed, and uh, she plunked me down on the gurney, and she was like huffing with exertion. And she gave me a, you know, are you doing, are you gonna be okay? And then she like left, and because I, I said thank you, and you know, that's all I could get out. But by the time my friend arrived with my lunch and my books, Jackie was already gone. And the nurse helped me pull myself together, and we called my mom and got me to the emergency room for X-rays. Um, by the way, I only broke a finger, which is kind of lame. After a fall down the stairs, you only break a finger, but that's all right. Um, but the whole time I was wrestling with this idea of what had happened in those few minutes. This person who I knew didn't like me, who had, had chosen to help me when I had been in need, she didn't make fun of me, which is the first thing I would have expected her to do. She didn't even just walk past, you know, kind of edge around the stairs and go on her way. She didn't even walk away. She carried me to the nurse's office. Seriously, she carried me. And I've pondered this event many times since then, um, because it was the first time in my young life when a person completely shattered my expectations of them. Uh, now I've been writing it down and um, talking about it, and I'm reminded so much of the parable of the Good Samaritan. I've never before considered if the person in the ditch was surprised by the help that the Samaritan gave them. And I've never before considered if the person, um, the Samaritan himself, might have had to force down some resentment in order to be of service to the guy in the ditch. Um, Because, I don't know, I had never been put myself in their shoes, I guess. But um, after that, Jackie and I didn't have any further conflicts. Um, But I'll never again make the mistake of assuming that people are either my friends or my enemies. There's so many subtleties in the way we humans relate to one another so many motives and feelings that we never know about. I guess the true test is how we react when we do see people in trouble.
0: Isn't she great? She's good looking, too. So I don't, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that in church or not. I don't know. Well, I guess I'll find out later. So let, let's read on and see what Jesus has. To, what else he has to say to this expert in the law. Read with me, Luke chapter 10, verses 36 through 37. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, "The one who had mercy on him." Jesus told him, "Go and do likewise." In this final section of the story, Jesus asked the man, or the yeah, Jesus asked the man who had mercy. You see, for Jesus, the important question for us to ask is not, who's my neighbor? Who do I have to love? The more important question to ask is, how do I show love? How do I show love to the people that I cross on a daily basis who need it the most? Well, from this story, I think there's three things that the Samaritan could teach us about how to show love to other people. Uh, Yesterday, I... um, I had the um, the opportunity to take the teens. As I've already said, the district celebrate life. Now, most of the entire evening, I was with the teens. But at the same time, with everything going on tonight, you know, the service and all that, I had to take a little bit of time to, you know, make sure everything was in order. So I found a quiet room, got on my laptop, looked at the order service, made sure everybody was in place to do everything that, you know, needs to happen for something like this. I also checked over my sermon. There were there were um, a few things I had to change, you know, a few minor additions I wanted to make, stuff like that. And so I was making those two teens who I don't know um, come up to me and sit down. And I started, um, you know, just kind of still typing away because they were kind of talking to each other. Well, then all of a sudden... Um, they started talking about, like, board games they played with the teens and all, like, the nerdy stuff they were into, kind of like Star Wars and all that stuff. And I just made, you know, a few quick comments like, hey, me too, I'm 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 a geek. And so we kind of, like, started striking up a conversation. And, and so, you know, just a little bit here and there, but really I was focused on what I was doing. And after maybe about a minute or so, I just decided, okay, I'm going to focus on this. I need to get this done. I don't have time to talk to these guys. Don't know who they are. Don't go to my church. You know, they're just going to, they can just talk amongst themselves, you know, discuss. And so I'm sitting there typing and stuff, and I keep hearing them talking, and at this point they're starting to talk louder and louder, and I'm getting a little bit annoyed. I mean, after all, I am trying to write this sermon on how to show love to other people, and I don't have time to show love to people. I mean, seriously, can't you go somewhere else? You know, go find a Samaritan. Um, You know, I'm a priest. i got stuff to do. I'm a Levite. Um, And obviously the Holy Spirit, as he often does, started to check me and convict, convict me. So I decided to just kind of push my laptop aside and started talking to him. Um, We talked about, you know, I'm not sure, whatever, you know, nerds like me talk about sci-fi movies and uh, fun stuff to do, whatever. So we're talking and all of a sudden one of them just admits, I'm not a Christian, I'm an atheist. And here's why. About five minutes he goes into a spiel of why he's an atheist. And then his friend, you know, who was a Christian, apparently, started talking back with him. And I'm just sitting, listening to this, right? It's like a tennis match. I'm sitting there going, good point. Oh, that's a tough question. He's answering it. It's going, I mean, the kid's doing a great job winning his friends. I'm going back and forth. I'm not saying a word. Eventually, I start to feel like, okay, maybe I should say something. I just said, hey, guys, could I say something? And since, you know, I've been sitting there talking with them all this time, they looked at me. And I had a chance, and that teen had a chance to share the gospel with this kid who didn't know Christ and somehow, some way it shown up at District Celebrate Life. I wish I don't think I'm some big hero or anything. I mean after all, I was at first I was like, I'm not even gonna talk to you guys. Oh, I've got important stuff to do, look at Murray. Uh he didn't even accept Christ, I gotta say. But after he has left, me and his n- newfound friend, I found out those guys just met that day and they're gonna catch up on Facebook, all that kind of stuff. Um, we prayed for him. We took time. Once again, not a spiritual hero, just felt led to do it. But I wouldn't have had that opportunity unless I had taken time away from the busyness of my life, like the Samaritan did, and just took some time to love somebody else. Pastor Chuck this morning talked about how busy our world is. And for you adults, I've noticed in Fort Wayne, it's, it's worse than most cities. You know, I used to think 40 hours a week was like the regular work week. A lot of you guys put in tons more than that at the office. In teens, you guys are doing so much stuff. It's all good stuff, you know. Sports, a school, and all that stuff. You guys get so busy. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. You're doing all a bunch of really good things. But sometimes doing really good things can cause us not to have time for the best things. That's something I am learning right now. So much. As a pastor, I'm lucky in a lot of ways because my schedule is pretty much up to me. You know, nobody's, nobody comes in and tells me, hey, you need to work 80 hours this week. It doesn't happen. Whereas you guys might have jobs where that's required and you guys might have activities where that kind of lifestyle is required. I don't. I'm the only, I mean, I'm accountable to Pastor Chuck and the board, but really, I mean, they're understanding. I'm really, you know, it's up to me. But oftentimes I find myself thinking, well, I need to do this, I need to do that. And before I know it, I crowd out the two most important things. I don't leave time to love God and to love other people. And Pastor Chuck talked about it, I think, um, from if I was understanding right, talked about it largely from the, the aspect of, of loving God, of finding that sacred center. And lately, I've been good about doing that. I, I've taken time, I've gotten up earlier, I've cut other things out of my life to spend more and more time with God than I ever have before. But one thing that I still find... It's hard, difficult to find time for because I'm a task-oriented kind of person. If you've known me for five minutes, you know I'm, I'm a detail-oriented guy. I'm loving, but I'm very, very likely to, you know, step over a dead body on my way to get something that I think is really important done. That's a flaw I have. I'm coming to realize it. And so one thing I've been doing is trying to find ways to make more and more time for me to love other people. There's a guy in my apartment who's a Christian who recently is having job troubles because he hurt his shoulder. I've been able to pray with him and just talk with him once again. Not a spiritual hero. I've just actually, for a change, I've been around to talk to him. Well, that's my story. But you guys have your own. You guys interact with people all week, all day long. There are people that need you. There are people that need God in the, in the way that God might want them. To experience him, his love, his greatness, his majesty, his comfort, his peace, all those things, he might want to use you. But if we allow ourselves to get too busy, too caught up, then we might miss it. And they might be the ones to pay for it. The Samaritan also helps out in two other ways. He uses abilities and resources to help the Samaritan. There's a lot of things I could have done for the ex-con that I didn't. I could have offered him, hey, you know, I've gotten a lot of jobs before. I could sit down with you and I could help you search for a job. I didn't do it. I could have asked him about, you know, have you tried getting a job? I had connections. I lived in this town my whole life. I knew people I could get him in contact with to get him a job. I just didn't think about it because, in my mind, I didn't have time to stop. I worked for this guy named Craig. He was a general contractor he said one time to me, you know what, uh, in my life I think sometimes I've been a terrible businessman. My business sometimes seems like it's failing, nothing goes right, um, you know, my workers are always getting in trouble. And then he walked away and the conversation was over, but I knew Craig good enough to know what was really going on. You see, with his business, Craig hired the people that nobody else would hire, That's just how he operated. I mean, obviously, he did it within reason. But he also, he took time with those people he hired. He took time away from the office to help them with financial management, all different kinds of things that a normal boss would not do. Craig showed me what it means to be a good Samaritan. The third way that the Samaritan helps is he also offers his money. Now, in our economy, a lot of us have less and less To go around. And yet sometimes, God still calls us to use our gifts to bless other people. We have faith promise and alabaster and all these things. Those of us who can and feel prompted by the Spirit should always give. When the economy gets tight, our first reaction is to hold on to what we have thinking it might be the last we get. And I understand completely that me and my wife do it. Everybody does. I mean, most people do it. Everybody should. We have to We have to pray and consider what God would have us to give and what God would have us to keep, right? I understand that that goes on. But as a people, I hope that we remain passionate about giving. Since I've been here, one thing I've noticed about this church is that you guys do a great job. And so when I preach this, I know you guys are like, we already give tons. My, my. this part of the sermon isn't to tell you to, to give more unless you're not give, giving to anybody for any reason then obviously you might want to give more but my, what I'm trying to say is make sure you don't stop because when times get tough when times get hard I've noticed in my financial life my first reaction is to try to hold on to what I got but maybe God is calling you at certain times to do more to give to others to show people love So after my brief contact with the ex-convict, I had his question stuck in my head. Does the church help people? I, I should have answered the guy at first, I thought, and said, well, of course the church helps people. Have you ever been to one? Right? I mean, of course we help people. We do all kinds of good things. Drive by a hospital. Most of the time, there's a cross on it. You know, who do you think starts a lot of these things? There's... Christians have done a lot of great in the world and I was so amazed that he had never taken the time to notice. But as much as I wanted to answer his question, I realized that we in the church answer it every single day by our actions and by our deeds. And so as we close tonight, I don't know, I'm going to pray and close this, but maybe God would lay on your heart and mind maybe one person who might need love. Maybe it's that person who you walk by and you say hi to, and maybe all of a sudden, their eyes droop a little bit more. They look a little bit more tired than usual. Maybe there's somebody who you really don't like to be around all that much, but you know they're going through a hard time. Maybe you could start a conversation. I don't know what God could lead you to. But I know if we pray, God very well may just teach us not only to pray, although I pray and hope that He does. He may also teach us how to love not only Him, but also other people. So allow me to pray. Father God, I thank You so much tonight that You are not a God who passed by on the other side. When You saw us struggling in sin, You showed us love. You made a way for us to come to You, to have a real relationship with You through Jesus Christ. And because of that love, you have enabled us and even called us and gifted us to show love to other people. If I were to look around this room, I'm sure that I would see that, that we have so much to give. Our teams are so talented. Our adults so faithful. So giving. Lord, it would be a shame if we got so busy with important things that we started to forget the most important thing. Lord, I just ask and pray that you would help us to love you but also that that love would overflow from our life and lead us to reach out to other people. Father God, I don't know what it will look like. I don't know how it's shaped. I'm not even sure of all the people you've called me to love. But God, we're asking. And we know that you are faithful and that you can show us how to love and also who to love. And I pray that in your infinite wisdom and infinite power that you would let us be your hands and feet. May the Holy Spirit come upon us and teach us what it means to love like never before, to love like our Savior who died on the cross for us. In His name we pray. Amen.